Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Investigates podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Today's episode brings us to the country I spent a good chunk of my childhood in, which is Australia. This is also the last case of True Blue Crime Investigates that I will be publishing until after I return from CrimeCon 2023. During that last week of September, I plan on starting my schedule that will include two episodes of True Blue Crime Investigates each week, so if you like what you've heard so far, there are a lot more coming in the next few months. But before we get into this episode, let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime Investigates. While some crimes can change the way a person or family lives their lives, few crimes change the way an entire country functions. Australia has always been a somewhat laid-back country. Even when I visited Australia in 2016 to meet up with some of my childhood mates, I felt a much more relaxed atmosphere when talking with people and seeing how they operated. Australia in the 20th century had a relatively low crime rate compared to countries like Canada and the United States, And during the 1960s, this allowed parents to feel comfortable with their young children going into the world somewhat unsupervised. In 1966, the three Beaumont children, aged 9, 7, and 4, caught a bus to a nearby beach to stay cool on a hot summer day. Despite their young ages, they made this trip without an adult. Not something seen as uncommon at the time, but sadly, they would never make it back home. What happened to the Beaumont children changed Australia and is one of the country's greatest unsolved crimes. This is the story of the disappearance of the Beaumont children. On January 26, 1788, English explorers landed at Sydney Cove and gave birth to the modern Australia. That day is celebrated across the country and is known as Australia Day. 178 years later, on Australia Day in 1966, three children wanted to escape the summer heat in Adelaide, Australia by attending a local public beach. The oldest child, Jane, was nine, and she had a younger sister named Arna, aged seven, and a younger brother named Grant, aged four. The children had spent the day before at Glenelg Beach, a public beach popular for swimming and surfing, as the cool water was welcome relief from the hot Australian summer sun. They had been dropped off at the beach on January 25th by their father, Jim, on his way out of town for a business trip. The following morning, which was the morning of Australia Day, the children asked their mother Nancy if they could go back to the beach again that day. She agreed that the family had only one car and Jim had taken it for his sales trip. Nancy agreed that they could go and gave them money to catch a bus and buy some snacks and told them to be home by noon. They caught the city bus at 8.45 a.m. and completed the three-kilometer bus ride to the beach. As far as Nancy knew, her children would play at the beach, cool off in the water, and then return home as requested. But as noon approached and then passed, the children didn't come home. The bus only came every two hours in the afternoon, so Nancy figured that maybe the children missed the noon bus and would be home on the 2 p.m. bus. 
but that bus also stopped and her children didn't show. Worry turned into panic and Jim returned from his sales trip early. Jim drove to the beach and started looking through the large Australia Day crowds. He must have thought the kids had just lost track of time or taken a nap in the shade somewhere, but he couldn't locate them. After failing to find his children at the beach, he drove home and Nancy joined him as the two of them drove through their neighborhood and nearby streets looking for the missing children. Finally, at 5.30 p.m., they went to the Glenelg police station to report Jane, Arna, and Grant as missing. A massive police search of the area was conducted. Originally, police believed what the Beaumont parents did, that the children had just lost track of time and were, gonna, and were playing somewhere in the area of the beach, and with more eyes looking for them, they would be located and reunited with a stern warning about better time management. But as the search of the beach and surrounding area failed to locate the children, the search area was expanded to include the airport and nearby train stations. Police began to worry this was not a case of missing children, but a triple abduction slash kidnapping. As night fell, news outlets were gathering information, and by the next morning, newspapers and television reports across the country went front and center with the story. All of Australia knew about the three children disappearing from the beach on Australia Day, and many will say that that was the day that innocence and trust died in Australia. Before the crime, parents had little to no fear of letting their children ride city buses, bike to parks, or play unsupervised all day. After January of 1966, parents began monitoring their children's behaviors and only allowing them to go out of sight if they had proper supervision. The crime literally changed parenting across the country. The media coverage of the story did help the investigation into the disappearance. Several witnesses came forward to police and gave statements about seeing the Beaumont children at the beach on Australia Day. Their statements would help shape the investigation as many people stated they saw the children in the company of a tall, blonde man in his mid-30s. Police knew that Jim, the father of the children, was in Snowtown for work that day, so finding this mysterious man was a priority in the investigation. The investigation would be centered around the children's interactions with this mystery man. An elderly woman stated that around 11 a.m. she saw the children playing in a sprinkler on a grass field near the beach. They were being watched by the mystery man. Fifteen minutes later, the man is seen playing with the children who are laughing and having fun with the stranger before he helps the children get dressed by putting their shorts on over their swimwear. At noon, when the children were supposed to catch the bus home, they were seen purchasing food and drinks from a cafe called Wenzel's Cake Shop, located just off the beach. Jane paid for their food and drink purchase with a one-pound note, which is later considered very odd as Nancy had given the children only coins to use to purchase their snacks that morning, and it assumed as that the man gave them the cash currency. The last known sighting of the Beaumont children occurred at 12.15 p.m., as they were seen sitting on a park bench and appeared to be waiting for someone to pick them up. While some sightings in the hours that followed and even days, weeks, months, and years after the disappearance were reported, none had been given much credibility. According to the research, it appears police believe someone took the Beaumont children somewhere after they were seen on the park bench and likely murdered them and hid their bodies somewhere they have never been found. Jim and Nancy were first in denial about their children befriending an older man, as they claimed the man would have had to earn the trust of Jane, who was notoriously shy around strangers. For a man to have gained her trust in such a short amount of time seemed unlikely. But as we now know, people who predate on children are often groomers and spend a considerable amount of time earning the trust of their child victims. 
It became clear that the children may have met the man on previous unsupervised trips to the beach, as Arna had recently told her mother that Jane had found a boyfriend at the beach. At the time Arna said this, Nancy figured she was being overdramatic about a male child roughly Jane's age. But in hindsight, this man could have been seen as a boyfriend to Jane because Arna was only seven and wouldn't have understood the complexity of the situation. The purchase of the food from Wenzel's was claimed by some to be a case of mistaken identity, but the shopkeeper knew the children well as they frequented his store and he remembered the oddity of Jane paying with a one pound note as the children always paid with coins and only ever had enough money for bus fare and a light snack. One pound of money back then was enough to buy meals for the three children, which was a major change in behavior for them. And we'll take a quick break from the story here to talk about what we've covered so far. There is some debate about the time that the children left. Uh, several of the sources say that they caught the bus at 8.45 in the morning, and there's other timelines that say that the bus was a 10 a.m. bus. And so I don't know if this is based on when the bus was supposed to arrive at the beach or what time the, the children got on the bus, but really the front part of this story doesn't matter as much. It does make me wonder if they were really only going to go to the beach for less than two hours because they would have had to, if they caught a 10 a.m. bus with extra stops, they would have only got to the beach with maybe 90 minutes to play at the beach, to play at a nearby park and to eat some snacks it just doesn't seem like it's really worth the effort so it, to me it makes more sense that they caught the bus at 8:45. then even if they get to the beach after nine they still have almost three hours so the but the timing of the morning doesn't matter it's the timing around noon and there's really in my opinion two theories of what happened that day regarding this this mystery man one is what the parents came to believe that Jane had this quote-unquote boyfriend that they had met at the beach and this would have indicated a long pattern of grooming in which the man earned the children's trust and likely was able to convince them to come with him from the beach that day the other option is in several of the sources that talked about the kids had lost their money, they believed the money had been stolen from them, which this included their money for snacks and for bus fare back. So they were somewhat stranded unless they were gonna make the three kilometer walk from the beach back to their house without this bus fare. And so I look at that and say one of two things happened. Either somebody really did steal their bus fare while they were wading or swimming in the beach or whatever and they left their stuff somewhere, or this man specifically removed the coins somehow, creating a situation of desperation in which he can be the hero, come in with this one pound note, tell them it's okay, you can go buy some stuff from the cake store, get yourself whatever you want. And then the plan could have either been for the children to believe they could use some of the change from that purchase for their bus fare or it's possible that the man realized that they would miss their bus and then offered them a ride home and that's why they were waiting on the bench at 12:15. the man may have gone to get his vehicle and was going to meet them now this next part is something we see often when you're researching these older cases 
and I guess it's sometimes too the more modern cases, is relying on psychics. And that's something we haven't talked about in either True Blue Crime or True Blue Crime Investigate so far, is the use of, of psychics. And I'm sure I'm wrong, but I don't know that there is a case out there that I'm familiar with, at least, that a psychic was used and the information provided by the psychic was found to actually assist the investigation. I know that psychics often offer their services either for free for exposure purposes or at extravagant prices. And I think that was the case for, for this was it was a very expensive psychic. But again, I don't know personally. I'm sure there's maybe a case or two out there that would prove me wrong. But as far as I know, uh, these psychics have not truly assisted investigations, but people believe that they do. So... Desperate for answers, the public raised money for a famous Dutch psychic named Gerard Boisset to come to Adelaide to offer his services and try and locate the children. His arrival and investigation managed to bring a lot of attention back to the case, but while he offered a few possibilities to include the children were buried under a building that had just been erected, no true evidence was located. The building he identified as a possible burial site underwent demolition in 1996 and investigators were allowed to look for remains and none were located. And again, I don't want to upset people who may believe in psychics or the possibility that they can assist with an investigation, but to me that's just too simple of an answer is to look at a building that was built around the time of the disappearance and say that the children are underneath that building because short of getting permission from the construction company or the owners of the building to, to basically destroy the building to look for these children on nothing other than a suggestion from a psychic, it's going to be very difficult to prove the psychic's theory wrong, I guess, unless those children are found somewhere else it's a situation where in this case for 30 years people wondered if, if children were buried under that building and again this i think he showed up it was something like it was late in 1966 so it wasn't like he was there a month or two after the investigation i want to say it was like november time frame so like 10 months after the children were missing so in those 10 months again it would be very easy for him to locate a building that was near completion by the time he arrives that would have had its foundation poured around the time the children went missing and indicate that that is the building that the, the children were buried under. And people did hold out hope. They did really believe in this guy and they really thought in 1996 when this building was being demolished that they would find the bodies of the Beaumont children underneath the foundation of this building. But as we know, since their bodies have not yet been recovered as of 2023 they were not found in 1996 and the nancy jim experienced new hope in 1968 two years after their children vanished when they received two letters from nearby dandenong victoria claiming to be written by jane and the children's captor the first letter from jane reported they were being kept in good conditions by quote the man end quote and when compared to handwriting of jane's police did believe the letters could be genuine the other letter, the one written by the proclaimed captor, stated he was willing to return the Beaumont children at a prearranged meeting location, but there were instructions not to bring the police or the media. The information was leaked on the prearranged day. The Beaumonts were followed by the police and the media, and no one showed up with the children. 
A third letter arrived, attributed to someone claiming to be Jane, and in the letter, it was revealed the man had seen the police, and now that the trust was broken, the kids would not be returned. And, and one that struck me about this was the handwriting, and it made me think back to the emphasis on handwriting, especially cursive, in the 1960s, 1970s, and how I've seen a lot of handwritten letters related to historical cases back from the 60s and 70s, and there was such an emphasis put on this handwriting, this especially the cursive writing, that it does appear like a lot of handwritten letters back in those days are very similar in writing style, the size of the letters, pen strokes, all that kind of stuff. So a child or somebody who would have gone to school back in the 1960s likely would have had a similar writing style to Jane who was nine years old so she would have already gone through several years of schooling so it did stick out to me when I when police believed that it was possible this was Jane's handwriting that's something that's very hard to hoax in today's world and in, in handwriting because I think there's been much less emphasis on handwriting in the past 20 years so you see a lot more variations to especially to children's writing when they're actually forced to handwrite stuff out there there's a lot of differences because it's it was almost a, a military style drill instruction when it came to handwriting uh, for kids back in the 1960s compared to what it is now so while a lot of weight was put into the fact that the handwriting could have been the same, as we're going to find out, these letters are hoaxes and that the handwriting was probably similar because the, the person who wrote out the, these notes just wrote in a similar style to Jane as they both attended school around the same time. And it took until technological advances made in the 1990s to identify a fingerprint on the letters that matched a man who was a teenager at the time the letters were written. He confessed to police that the letters were a hoax, and due to the expiration of the statute of limitations, he was never charged for the pain he caused the Beaumont family. And so we do see this from time to time, especially in these famous nationwide, worldwide style uh, kidnappings slash missing children. You'll see these hoaxes. Uh, sometimes they're phone calls. Sometimes they're in the modern world. They're emails or texts or social media posts. And back in the 60s, it's, it's these letters. And as I mentioned before, they're written, in this case, they find out they're written by a boy who was a teenager at the time. I want to say he was like 13 or 14 at the time. So again, he would have attended school around the same time, learned the same writing style as Jane would have in, in the school system. And so that's likely why his writing did roughly match Jane's handwriting. However, because it took them so long to identify the fingerprint, as outside of any type of criminal action they could take against this man. And he was basically his only punishment was that he was ridiculed by the court of public opinion at that point for being a, a heartless and idiotic teenager back 1968. Lack of any physical evidence from the abduction has meant that investigators have had nothing but eyewitness testimony, tips and leads, and manufactured suspects to propel the now almost 60-year-old case. Several suspects have been publicly named over the years, but no one has been charged with the crimes. And all of the suspects were manufactured from related crimes to include sexual abuse of children and child murderers. So I am going to go through a 
somewhat abbreviated list of the suspects. There's a lot more out there, but some of them are, are pretty far reaching to the point that the age of this mystery man and the the age of the suspect at the time is nowhere close or there appears to be no connection between Adelaide and the suspect. So I will cover just the most likely suspects and talk about some of the reasons they may or may not have been involved in the Beaumont children disappearance. And then we'll kind of do a, a coverall of some of the general potential suspects afterwards. And Harry Phipps was a businessman who lived close to the beach and was known to give out one pound notes to children at the beach. Many saw his actions as grooming and he fit the description of the man seen in the Beaumont children that day. His own son reported him as a possible suspect and claimed he saw the children in his yard that day after his father brought them to his house. Two men who were teenagers at the time came forward to police after many years and stated that Harry had paid them to dig a grave-sized hole on some property he owned around the time of the disappearance. The area the men described was dug twice, once in 2013 and once in 2018, and only animal bones and rubbish were located. There are allegations that Harry's son only reported the incident after being involved in a bitter inheritance battle with his father, who then died in 2004. So this is one of those suspects that there's a lot pointing towards his potential involvement, at least at the bare minimum of being the man who's grooming the children. And it's something we'll talk about later is this man, this mystery man, while he is the most likely suspect, we don't actually have any eyewitnesses stating that they saw the children leave that day with this man. So it is entirely possible, although unlikely, that the man who was grooming the children had nothing to do with their disappearance. Let's just say, for example, this Harry Phipps was grooming the children, known for giving out one pound notes. He gave the children a one pound note, said, go buy whatever food you need and, and use the change for bus fare. And then he leaves their life, maybe planning on grooming down the road, the same children, but doesn't intend to do anything and doesn't do anything to him that day. There is the entire possibility that somebody else then came along and took the children. Again, not likely, but also it can't be ruled out as a possibility because we don't have any eyewitnesses saying that they saw a specific suspect with the children after the last time they were seen sitting on that park bench. Now, we are going to have Harry's son in this case saying that he saw the Beaumont children in his yard, but this is during and after a bitter inheritance battle with his father, and there are reports that this story has changed at least a dozen times over the years to the point that they don't lend a lot of credibility to the story. So Harry Phipps is one of those guys who fits roughly 80% of what we're looking at right down to the one pound note that was something that many people stated that they saw him hand out these one pound notes to children at the beach it was creepy behavior it was pedophilic behavior on his part but again there's nothing that directly links him to the murders although a lot of people put him as one of their number one suspects just based on some parts of the story matching up these teenagers asking him to dig this grave-sized hole on one of his properties. Unfortunately, as I said, despite finding anomalies in a couple places, all they found was, was these animal bones. 
And as often the case with situations like this, it could be something as simple as he needed to bury the family dog or some type of a pet or something like that. He had the means to pay some some teenage boys, which again, there's questions there about what why he's hiring teenage boys, but he's having them dig this hole and what could be as something as innocent as burying a family pet or getting rid of some garbage or getting rid of some evidence of something completely different can look like he's more involved in this crime than he really is. But again, on an overall picture, he definitely is a strong suspect in this case. There's just no evidence other than some potentially tainted eyewitness testimony that puts him involved with directly with the Beaumont children. Alan Monroe was a known child predator who had been a scoutmaster in the Adelaide area in the mid-1960s. He was later accused of and pled guilty to several sex offenses against young boys in the area during that time period. Another child predator reported to police that Alan showed up at his residence after the disappearance with the bodies of the Beaumont children inside, and that he admitted to mistaking Jane Beaumont for a boy because of her short haircut. Evidence found in 2017 pointed to Allen being in the area of Glenelg Beach around the time of the disappearance, but investigators had never been able to positively link him to the crimes. And again, in this case, we have another potentially tainted eyewitness testimony. The child predator that states that he saw Allen with the Beaumont children, I believe this guy's name was Allen himself, likely had some reason to throw this Allen under the bus when it came to the Beaumont children disappearance so just his testimony alone isn't great evidence however again we have some parts of the story matching up there's evidence he was in the area at the time there's evidence he committed other crimes that he actually pled guilty to against boys that were roughly Jane's age and Jane did have a very short haircut that if looked at from afar or maybe from behind she could have been mistaken for a boy but then again it's three children and I know this guy normally would predate on children that were alone so there's some parts that don't match up and again just a complete lack of direct evidence to him having involvement in the disappearance. James O'Neill is a convicted child murderer that was sent to life in prison after killing a nine-year-old boy in Tasmania. According to several people, he confessed to them that he was responsible for the Beaumont case, but has denied his involvement to the police. One investigator believes O'Neill could be responsible and claims that when he asks about his involvement, O'Neill has never denied taking the children and only made claims that he was elsewhere at the time, which made the investigator believe O'Neill couldn't deny his involvement because he was in fact the kidnapper. Other investigators have looked into O'Neill and dismissed him as a suspect. So this one investigator, his entire theory about O'Neill is that he's committed a similar crime against a, a child in Tasmania and so he could have committed this crime before. He believed that he was in the Adelaide area at the time and when he kept questioning uh, James about where he was at the time of the abduction he would never say that he didn't take the children he would just give alibis that couldn't be confirmed and this is one of those psychology things where you have to 
believe that your suspect is the type of person that if accused of something will flat out deny it and not everybody does some people who aren't guilty of a crime don't feel the need to deny their involvement because to them it's a given that they weren't involved so it, it can go either way investigators can look at it either way some people if you say were you involved in the disappearance of the Beaumont children they will flat out say, no, I had nothing to do with the disappearance of the Beaumont children. Others will say, I couldn't have taken the Beaumont children because I was in Melbourne at the time. You're not denying your involvement in the crime. You're saying it's impossible because you were somewhere else. And again, psychologically, some people will feel the need to flat out deny. Other people don't feel like they need to convince anybody else. They know they haven't done it. So they're just gonna tell you what the facts are that indicate they couldn't have. So this is where some investigators have ruled him out and this one investigator believes he's he's the, the main suspect. And in 1979, a badly mutilated body of a 25-year-old man was found in Adelaide. His death would eventually be linked to five other similar murders of young men in the area. The last murder, which occurred in 1983, was attributed to a man named Bevan Spencer Von Einem. Bevan was later convicted of the last murder, but not prosecuted for the other four murders due to police errors in the investigations. While the victims of these murders, called the family murders, were very different from the Beaumont children, Bevan matched the description of the male seen with the children, and according to some people, he bragged about being involved in the Beaumont case. Investigators later believed Bevan could have been part of another child abduction in Adelaide that occurred in 1973 from the Adelaide Oval. In that case, two young girls were kidnapped in broad daylight, just like the Beaumont children. Police have not ruled out Bevan, and in 2007, it was reported they were looking at old news footage of the coverage of the case to see if a man that some claim is Bevan is seen watching the crowds that gathered to search for the children. So again, this is another one of the very strong suspects in the case. There's a lot indicating he could have been involved this guy was really messed up in the head that's the best way to put it these mutilated bodies he was committing what he called surgeries on his victims where he was dissecting them and and doing weird stuff with the, the body organs and he was fascinated with the human body and he mainly aimed for these early 20 year old males so very different from the children the beaumont children and the two girls taken from the adelaide oval but many investigators have always believed that whoever took the Beaumont children in 1966 also took the two girls from the Adelaide Oval in 1973. And it was said that Bevan had told people that he was involved in both. And I think that's how he, he where the link is established. He was in the area. He's telling people he's involved in it. But again, there's no direct link uh, obviously no physical evidence link so with each of these suspects we've talked about there's strong circumstantial evidence to show that they either have the ability the proclivity to commit these crimes uh, or similar crimes and they're in the area or could have believed to have been in the area fit the description of this guy that the Beaumont children were seen with so they kind of check a lot of the boxes, but there really isn't a stands out above all other suspect. If there was one just based on the 
information it would be the first guy that Harry Phipps, mainly because he lived like three blocks from Glenelg Beach. Uh, so he was within walking distance. Uh, a lot of people reported very strange behavior. They reported him giving money to children, potentially spying on children in the changing rooms. Uh, he was a pretty unsuspecting guy. He was a family man himself, a business, well-known businessman and so he would have been able to get away with a lot of stuff that people would have not probably looked at as strangely because of his social status. And he likely would have been a, a guy that was easy to gain the trust of other people, including children. So if there was one strong suspect, it's going to be him. But again, there are also a half dozen other suspects that are mentioned in the case, but most have no known ties or don't match the suspect description. So as I mentioned, I'm not going to take the time to cover them because there's pretty much a complete lack of any evidence of their involvement. But as I also mentioned before, there is the possibility that the man seen grooming the children may not be related to the disappearance. It's possible this was a child predator like Harry Phibbs, and while they had plans to commit some form of sexual assault on the children, the beach was too busy that day, and this dissuaded them from doing so. And it's possible someone that no eyewitness saw that day offered the children a ride home and ended up abducting them. And again, that's one of the most difficult parts of this case, is we've got a, a very staggered timeline without a whole lot of eyewitness testimony because there's going to be a lot of kids at the beach that day, a lot of unsupervised kids. There's going to be a lot of people who probably saw the Beaumont children, didn't even realize that they saw the Beaumont children. There's going to be people who saw other children. And so three children leaving with a man from the beach uh, on a day where most people really aren't working, so it could be their father, isn't going to really stick out in people's minds. And so in reality, what we, what we have is a man acting with some very pedophilic behavior leading up to their disappearance, but no real obvious eyewitness to their disappearance. And the fact that they've never been found also indicates that there really isn't a direct link. Now, let's just say these, the Beaumont children are found someday and they're found on a property that belongs to Harry Phipps. I think that completes the loop. And I think you say that based on his behaviors, known behaviors, the reports that he was potentially had the children at his house after the fact and then their bodies are found in his property. I think you're able to finally close this case and say that he was responsible for their abduction and murders. But if the children are found somewhere else with no direct link to any of these suspects, I don't know that it's going to further the case at all unless somehow the location they're found in or the something that they're found with uh, indicates a suspect. And this case is one of the most infamous cases in Australia and is still considered active today. Police do receive ongoing tips and leads and are conducting follow-up investigations on a regular basis. There is a standing $1 million reward for anyone providing information that leads to solving the disappearance. Jim and Nancy tried to stay together after the crime and remain in their house in case the children ever came home. They wanted to be able to provide a stable and comfortable place for recovery for the children, but as the years passed, they eventually separated, divorced, sold their house, and went their separate ways. Nancy Beaumont passed away in 2019 at the age of 92, and Jim Beaumont passed away in April of 2023 at age 97. 
and they never gave up the quest for answers as to what happened to their children. As mentioned before, this crime and some other related crimes in the years before and after the Beaumont children disappearance changed parenting in Australia. At the time of the crime, the vast majority of people did not look down upon Nancy for allowing her children to go to the beach unsupervised. This was common practice at the time and even in larger cities such as Adelaide were considered safe places for children. And I think that's what makes this case so different uh, from anything that we would see today. Any time that there's a single child abduction or disappearance, let alone three children from the same family, there's a lot of both suspicion and blame put on the parents. And and I'm not going to say in every case that some of that isn't warranted. Obviously, there's there's cases like Casey Anthony's case and others where it's strongly believed, if not almost proven, that the parents had something in, to do with the, the missing child. There's There's also been several other cases like that. But in today's world, if you had a report of a woman allowing her nine seven and four year old child to go to a busy public city beach unsupervised for a few hours and they go missing that mother slash father would just be destroyed uh, via public opinion via the internet sites via all this kind of stuff that coming down on how could they let children that age wander unsupervised and because it was accepted at the time, thankfully Nancy and Jim didn't have to deal with that as much. I'm sure they dealt with it some, but it was one of those things where they definitely would have felt more guilt themselves than they ever would have had you know, shade thrown their way for, for how they parented that day. Just because of that was so common practice for so many parents to do. It just Things are so different today that it's it's hard to fathom that being acceptable practice but it was but the beaumont children abduction and the later adelaide oval abductions that i mentioned occurred just after the famous 1960 graham thorn kidnapping and the 1965 wanda beach murders and the four crimes together are considered to have ended an era of trust and innocence in australia and i'll likely cover some of these other cases at some point here down the road. Um, the Adelaide Oval abductions are very similar to the Beaumont children disappearance. Uh, there's there's a, a better timeline for that case than there is for this one, but many people believe the, the two crimes are linked. And then it definitely could cover the Graham Thorne kidnapping and the Wanda Beach murders as well. But again, throughout that time period from about 1960 until the Ovals, I think it was 1973, it was really a decade of, of parenting that changed from this unsupervised, let kids be kids, let kids explore the world, it's safe out there for them, to the point of where we are today where kids under a certain age can't be out in public unsupervised it's too dangerous and something bad could happen and the main suspect for this case was reported to be in his mid-30s in 1966 which means he'd be approaching 100 years old at this point and it's highly unlikely he's still alive but i'm holding out hope that somewhere out there evidence will one day allow investigators to answer the question of what happened to the beaumont children and who was responsible it won't change the terrible nature of the crime, but it'll answer a question that has haunted Australians for almost 60 years. 
the truth can help people better understand the tragedy of this crime and Australia would be one step closer to moving past this terrible time in their history. But that is the story of the Beaumont children. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.